transmitting live from the top of the Empire State Building on 99.5 FM, WBAI New York, Pacifica Radio for the Tri-State Area. This is a special one-hour edition of Trump Watch, a weekly series investigating the actions of and reactions to President Donald J. Trump and his administration. I'm your host, Jesse Lett. Conrad, Tokyo, Sparrow, Pistachio, just done national, the dog is off sabbatical, rather watch an attention, politician, politics, CNN and all this, Guardio, move with your Trump and an SNL hilarity, troublesome times, kid, no time. President. I said last week, I believe it was last week, and I've said several times before, there's no intention or plan uh, to make any changes in regards to special counsel. Uh, but look, today's announcement has nothing to do with the president, has nothing to do with the president's campaign or campaign activity. Uh, the real collusion scandal, as we've said several times before, has everything to do with the Clinton campaign, Fusion GPS, and Russia. There's clear evidence of the Clinton campaign colluding with Russian intelligence to spread disinformation and smear the president to influence the election. We've been saying from day one there's been no evidence of Trump-Russia collusion and nothing in the indictment today changes that at all. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders answering questions at an official briefing on Monday. Hello and welcome to Trump Watch. Tonight we've got the whole hour to take a deep dive on what Robert Mueller's indictments of Donald Trump's former campaign advisor Paul Manafort and campaign aide Rick Gates and his unsealing of a plea deal by campaign volunteer George Papadopoulos on Monday means for the president and what it tells us about the nature of the special counsel's investigation into alleged Russian efforts to help Donald Trump win the 2016 presidential election and possible collusion between the president's campaign staff and Moscow. First, I'll be speaking with Politico senior investigative reporter Josh Meyer, whose October 30th piece is entitled Kremlin Likely Cultivated Trump Advisor, experts say. And in the second part of the program, I'll talk to national security journalist Marcy Wheeler, who wrote the Intercept article, George Papadopoulos's plea deal is very, very bad news for Attorney General Jeff Sessions, also published Monday. But before we get started... I just want to take a moment to send my deepest sympathies to anyone whose lives were affected by the attack on Lower Manhattan yesterday and express the pride that I felt as a New Yorker to watch locals of all ages refuse to let that tragic event ruin Halloween night, one of the city's biggest parties of the year. Your courage and defiance in the face of evil is what makes our city the greatest. Last Monday, when Robert Mueller announced Donald Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, and a former Manafort business associate, Rick Gates, were indicted on felony charges of conspiracy against the United States, acting as an unregistered foreign agent, and several other financial counts involving tens of millions of dollars rooted through offshore accounts, Trump and his staff felt that they had still dodged a bullet. Apparently, it wasn't until it was announced shortly thereafter that George Papadopoulos' October 5th deal with the Justice Department for lying under oath about contacts he had with a Russian professor with major ties to the Russian government had been that a level of panic seemed to set in, as White House reporter Ashley Parker of the Washington Post described to Judy Woodruff on last night's PBS NewsHour. Something that was striking was that the West Wing aides and the president himself were finding out the way sort of we were and the rest of America was, which was basically from news reports. So we sort of got to see the president processing that as it happened. So, for instance, after the first pair of indictments came down for Manafort and Gates, um, there were two feelings. One was the president kind of felt vindicated. He felt, you know, 
look, these guys are being looked into for alleged behavior that largely predates my campaign. The indictment didn't mention his name. It didn't mention any possible collusion between his campaign and Russia. So he sort of, you know, tweets out a kind of frustrated, but, you know, this isn't my issue. There's no collusion tweet. Right. And then that next indictment comes down um, for George Papadopoulos, which is potentially more problematic. And again, he's, as the White House has said, as you just said, he's someone who is an unpaid volunteer. He wasn't super senior, but that he definitely touches Russia um, in a way that, that those people in the first indictment did not. And it looks like the president's problems could be worsening. Earlier today, Bloomberg News reported on the alleged existence of an email from Papadopoulos claiming Trump campaign officials agreed to a pre-election meeting with representatives of Russian President Vladimir Putin. There's currently no reported evidence that such a meeting ever took place. So what does it all mean? Here to help us understand the significance of this plea deal, as well as Mueller's indictments, is Politico senior investigative reporter Josh Meyer. He wrote the October 30th article entitled Kremlin Likely Cultivated Trump Advisor, experts say. Hello, Josh. Welcome to WBAI. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the focus of your piece, and that is the likelihood of whether or not George Papadopoulos was a foreign operative for the Russian government. What have you found? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it, and it depends on what you mean by the word operative. I mean, I've uh, been covering uh, Russian espionage efforts for probably a couple decades now. And one of the things that they're very good at is what they call the useful idiot theory, which is that they co-opt people without them really knowing that they're being co-opted or they get what they want out of them without really even necessarily needing active collision on their part. But in this case, you know, uh, they do appear that they sent um, intermediaries uh, at him. They call it a dangle or a bump or things like that. I mean, in this case, it appears from the documents that this is a person who just happened to meet him in Italy, which, you know, nobody believes that was a coincidence. Uh, and then they strike up a friendship. They, they, you know, start talking. And then over time, they cultivate this person, Papadopoulos, and then they pass him off from the intermediary person, the harmless sort of uh, you know, professor type to somebody else. In this case, we think it might have been the woman who was identified as Putin's niece, uh, who has ties with the with the Russian government. So it's a very sophisticated approach. Uh, they did it with Carter Page too in 2013. There's court records about that. And the question is, did they do it with other people in the Trump campaign? And what did the Trump campaign do uh, in response? What did they do as sort of as a quid pro quo in terms of receiving stolen emails, uh, offering uh, to do something in return? Uh, as somebody from the CIA told me uh, just this afternoon, you know, if if they did agree to have these meetings uh, receive uh, damning information about their opponent, Hillary Clinton, and then offer to do something in return, for instance, dropping of sanctions, uh, you know, that uh, that could be the end of the presidency. If then that's a lot of ifs if it happened. But, you know, um, but that's that's the farthest worst case scenario here. In the article, you juxtapose quotes from an unnamed political advisor who said about Papadopoulos, uh, I think he was a guy that got in above his head and possibly will go to jail for doing something really stupid. He showed up at one meeting and then tried to set up meetings with Russians, but no one took him seriously on the campaign, unquote, with White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders' assertion that Papadopoulos had a quote-unquote extremely limited role on the campaign. How influential right. was Papadopoulos on the Trump 2016 presidential campaign? 
You know, it's it, it's hard to tell. I you know I think that they've they're they're sort of um, straining credulity when they keep using these terms. I mean, they actually have been saying with a straight face that Paul Manafort played a fairly you know a very limited role. It's almost like you know who was this guy? We don't even know who he is. When he was the campaign chairman, uh, you know, we we did a story months ago about um, hacked text messages from his daughters, and in those they talk about how Trump and and you know had basically told Manafort that he was you know he he won in the nomination and so forth. So um, you know they've also said that Carter Page was somebody that they would barely even recognize. So they can't keep saying that about people. Uh, and um, I mean, I think they're running out of of explanations for that. Um, you know, they, there were people, uh, in this case, Papadopoulos was in constant email contact with four senior members of the campaign. According to the FBI affidavit, he was discussing trips to Russia, uh, potentially, uh, damning information about Hillary Clinton. It's not clear who got, you know, all of that information or not, but he, he clearly was much more than a nobody. It should be pointed out though, that Paul Manafort's role on Trump's campaign was limited, at least so to speak. He joined the campaign uh, to elect the president in March of 2016, uh, but only served as Trump's campaign manager from June to August of 2016. Can you talk a little bit about his role on the campaign and, and why you feel he was important? Yeah, I mean, he, you know, th- that's true. I mean, but it was a very, very pivotal time in the campaign. Also, remember, uh, the Trump um, administration has confirmed that uh, I think Sarah Huckabee Sanders said this uh, yesterday that that Manafort was in touch with Trump, um, you know, up through the inauguration and I think perhaps past it, too. But so he was hired to help him lock up the nomination if there was going to be a floor fight at the convention uh, to wrangle delegates and, and things like that. Uh, but then after that, very quickly, he was uh, replaced Corey Lewandowski as the chairman, uh, chief strategist for, for the campaign and Trump apparently took a real shine to him because, you know, Manafort sold himself as somebody who had been out of politics for 20 years. And so he wouldn't bring the kind of baggage to the job that the people in the swamp were, which is somewhat ironic to those of us who are familiar with Mr. Manafort um, and his activities. I mean, I think he, you know, sort of embodies the swamp as the way people describe it. Um, But so he was, you know, was a pivotal role. He was one of the people that I think helped you know, uh, Trump stay on message and, and, and lock up the, the nomination and also, you know, perhaps win the presidency. Expand on that last statement. Why is uh, Manafort uh, an embodiment of the swamp, as you say? Well, I, you know, he uh, first he was uh, um, uh, he was a political operative for Ronald Reagan at a very, very young age. And then he and two of his um, associates, um, you know, Roger, uh, Roger Stone and, and uh, it was Manafort, Black and Stone. Uh, and the three of them started lobbying uh, the, you know, the, the administrations in Washington for a variety of, of um, clients from, from domestically and overseas. And Manafort developed a reputation fairly quickly as somebody who would represent all of the despotic leaders uh, that nobody else would. I mean, people with blood on their hands. And so he, you know, over time made a fortune from, you know, from representing um, you know, African dictators and, and uh, I think uh, Ferdinand Marcos and, and, and people like that. So, uh, you know, even his daughters in these email or text messages going back and forth, you know, talk about how they have blood on their hands. And, and of course, one of the biggest uh, despots that he, he uh, represented was Yanukovych in, in the Ukraine, who was a very, very pro-Russian candidate. And that's what he was doing right before he came to the United States to work on the Trump campaign. So there's questions about, you know, in fact, that's what a lot of the charges were about, was at least $75 million in money that he got from 
the Yanukovych and other Ukraine campaigns uh, that he didn't want to pay taxes on, allegedly. And so he, you know, set up court, uh, front companies and and in tax havens and laundered $75 million, paying, I think, $1.5 million for, for fancy clothes and, and Persian carpets and things like that. So, um, you know, I think in, in those ways, you would look at him as, as one of the alligators in the swamp. And it was his ties to the Ukrainian government that got him ousted from the campaign to begin with. Uh, is that... Uh, something that uh, are you trying to say that despite being ousted from the campaign, he remained an advisor to the president? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that they've confirmed that. I mean, it's not clear uh, how often he talked to him. I remember we would have conversations with him in the spring uh, and the summer, um, you know, and the fall and, and say, are you in touch with the president? He would be kind of coy about it. Um, but yeah, they were in touch and they were certainly in touch through intermediaries. I mean, I think president Trump valued his, his, um, you know, knowledge about campaigns. I mean, remember, Trump was sort of a, a neophyte when it came to, to campaigns, and and Manafort had been around the block a lot. I mean, with Yanukovych, you know, he was really credited with, with helping Yanukovych become president, you know, re-engineer himself, you know, in a, in a totally different sort of image, you know, remake himself. And I think with Trump, he didn't remake him as much as he did sort of help him um, – sort of uh, capitalize on some of the discontent in fr- fishers in the, in the U.S. society and really use those to, to um, you know, to, to, to drive home his message. Uh, and ironically, that's the same message that the Russian, you know, um, you know operatives were using to uh, manipulate um, public, uh, you know, opinion and, and voter behavior through Twitter and Facebook, you know, going after things like immigration and Black Lives Matter and so forth. So there was a lot of uh, you know, unity and message between what the Trump campaign was trying to do and what the Russians were trying to do. And I think one of the things they're looking at is whether Manafort had anything to do with that. The other subject of the indictments, uh, campaign aide Rick Gates, has been described in a lot of published reports as a business associate of Manafort's. But didn't he remain on the campaign long after uh, Manafort had gone? According to Gideon Resnick of the Daily Beast, Gates had much closer ties to the White House than Paul Manafort or George Papadopoulos and has even met with the president several times uh, in the White House. What is your reporting telling you about Rick Gates's role in all of this? Uh, It's a a very good point. I mean, Rick Gates to us was um, sort of a guy who flew under the radar um, I mean, somebody described him essentially as Manafort's Manafort, I think, um, uh, in the sense that, you know, he, he was one of his very trusted lieutenants. He was there for everything that he did in Ukraine, a lot of the other campaigns. Uh, but because he didn't have the sort of high-profile baggage that, that Manafort did when Manafort sort of had to walk the plank, um, you know, uh, Rick Gates stayed on. Um, he floated back and forth between uh, the campaign uh, the RNC, I believe, um, and then, you know, the administration. So he was also very valued as a, as a consultant and a, an advisor. You're listening to a special one-hour Trump Watch with Jesse Lent on WBAI New York. I'm talking to Politico senior investigative reporter Josh Meyer. Josh, let's talk about the indictments. Uh, Twelve counts, including conspiracy against the United States, conspiracy to launder money, acting as an unregistered foreign agent, making false statements, and several charges relating to failing to report foreign bank and financial accounts, as you mentioned. There are also allegations Manafort and Gates moved more than $75 million through offshore hidden bank accounts in Cyprus, St. Vincent, and the Grenadines and the Seychelles. Excuse me if I'm getting that pronunciation wrong. Manafort is accused of laundering more than $18 million, according to the indictment. 
this doesn't seem relevant to the Russian investigation on first blush. Is there any merit to the claim that the president has been pushing on Twitter that, quote, this is years ago before Paul Manafort was part of the Trump campaign? Uh, well, yeah, there is merit to that. But that but, you know, I think that, you know, as somebody described it to me, you know, um, President <clears throat> Trump is playing, you know, tiddlywinks and, and, and Director Mueller is playing chess. Um, I mean, he these, these indictments clearly um, are a first step in, in sort of leveraging people, um, you know, putting pressure on people to flip and cooperate in the investigation and then see what it leads to. I mean, so even if these are financial charges that had nothing to do with the election, there's a lot of through lines that if you trace them out outward from there, they could connect us to uh, potential collusion in the election. Uh, you might remember that, um, you know, there was some reporting a few weeks ago about how, uh, you know, tr- Trump, um, excuse me, Paul Manafort um, had emailed a guy named Konstantin Kalimnik, one of his associates in, in Ukraine, who's a suspected Russian intelligence, uh, former intelligence officer. Um, and he said, can we use my high visibility here on the campaign to be made whole? And what he was talking about was that um, uh, Manafort owes, you know, many millions of dollars to a guy named Oleg Deripaska, who is a very, very dangerous um, oligarch billionaire, uh, one of Putin's uh, sort of informal kitchen cabinet members. And so um, he offered uh, briefings in exchange for seeing if he could, you know, get some, um, you know, lessen, you know, some sort of love, as it were, uh, on on the money that they owed. So if that's true, that somebody, you know, very high up in the Trump campaign is offering personal briefings on confidential or classified information or even just, you know, policy decisions um, to a Russian oligarch, um, you know, who's also very close to, to Vladimir Putin, you know, you really start getting into, you know, problem areas. So I think that's where they're trying to establish this this baseline of charges, and then they're going to work out, outward from there. Um, but one thing that's interesting to note, and this is from the from the lead-in uh, to our show, uh, you were talking about this, is, you know, in some ways I think Mueller, um, you know, there's a bit of theatrics to this. I mean, uh, in a sense, and we can't prove that this happened, but, you know, they did the indictments of Manafort and Gates, um, and then it's almost as if perfect timing, as soon as Trump started tweeting about how, you know, this is ridiculous, has, has nothing to do with the campaign, it was almost like that, that, you know, people waited for that to happen, and then boom, they announced the plea agreement in the um, Papadopoulos case. So, you know, it, you know, it was almost like they waited for Trump to say, you know, they, didn't, they don't touch me here, uh, this has nothing to do with my campaign or, you know, my administration, and then they, you know, then they sort of dropped the hammer on this other thing. So I think that it was clearly a shot across the bow. I think that they're clearly signaling that they have a lot more information, and they're they're also clearly telling people that you know you can do this the hard way or the easy way. You can cooperate with us uh, and maybe get charged with um, you know lying to a federal agent, which often is dropped at the end of, of your of your participation, or you can go the hard way and get indicted and face you know uh, the rest of your life in prison. And yeah, I think it's an important detail to stress here that Mueller can roll out these indictments at any pace he wants, right? And he can add additional charges uh, sort of in his own time frame. Right. Right. I mean, that's what grand juries are for. I mean, one of their best friends is the superseding indictment. They can also bring just completely separate charges, too. Um, so, I mean, yeah, we I was, you know, um, expecting the Manafort and Gates indictments. I wasn't necessarily expecting them this early. I thought they might go after some of the peripheral figures first. 
but um, but we were you know stunned I think by the by the um, Papadopoulos uh, you know plea agreement uh, the fact that they were able to keep it secret for that long uh, the possibility that he has been proactively cooperating in the investigation a lot of people speculate that that means that he's been wearing a wire um, but you know it's it, it spells out trouble for these guys I mean in one of the um, you know, one of the affidavit um, assertions, you know, they talk about how uh, Corey Lewandowski was one of the people that he was in contact with in discussing a uh, possible trip to Russia and so forth. And, you know, it, you know, I go back to a story that I wrote in last March in which uh, Corey Lewandowski was one of the people that approved Carter Page's trip to Moscow. And, you know, while we were reporting that story, he insisted that there was nothing uh, untoward about it. It was completely harmless. At that time, nobody knew uh, anything about Russia. It was before the hack emails had even become public. Uh, nobody knew about the DNC hacks or Russia's involvement in any way. So, you know, why is there a problem with me, you know, approving a trip of his to Russia if he's doing it as, a, as an individual, not as a member of the campaign? Well, if you go back to the affidavit now, the same time he was insisting uh, that there was nothing going on and no knowledge of this, um, uh, you know, the allegation in the FBI affidavit is that Corey Lewandowski knew exactly about it because he was getting this other chain of emails with Papadopoulos about that very thing. So it raises a lot of questions. Um, uh, I have not yet been able to reach Corey Lewandowski to ask him about that, but, uh, um, you know, these guys have a lot of uh, questions to answer, I think. You may have heard Sarah Huckabee Sanders claim in the clip at the top of the program that the, quote, real collusion scandal has everything to do with the Clinton campaign, Fusion GPS, and Russia. Can you explain to the right. listeners what Fusion GPS is and whether or not you believe it's relevant here? Yeah, well, I mean, um, I'll, I'll take the first part, uh, the second part first. I mean, I think, um, um, I'm, yeah, I think they're just grasping at straws and I think they're ginning things up. And they've been doing that, um, you know, through a large part of this. But I think now they're really sort of, um, you know, straining credibility um, to, to a point where uh, they're really going to lose all I think credibility. I mean, there's, there's, I don't think there's anything to that. So Fusion GPS is a um, due diligence investigative firm that was uh, started by a, pro, a former Wall Street Journal reporter, Glenn Simpson. He assembled a staff of, of, of very good journalists and, and analysts and other people to do sort of, um, you know, investigative reporting, but for, for private clients. And in this case, uh, they were hired by uh, a Republican entity, which we didn't know of. And now we know that it was, um, you know, at least affiliated with the Free Beacon newspaper, which raises all sorts of questions, too. But they were the ones that were investigating Trump, um, you know, on behalf of the Republican, you know, deep pocket donor that didn't like Trump um, for the Republican Party. Um, and then once Trump locked up the nomination, they had no reason to, to need that anymore. And so, um, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign in the DNC picked up where they left off and, and a lawyer from Perkins Coy. Um, was Mark Elias, you know, was in charge of, I think, you know, taking taking over that and funding it and so forth. Uh, I don't know if he directly funded it, but so, yes, it, it, it changed hands. But the Republicans, and you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, I mean, says with a straight face that, you know, that the Democrats are the ones responsible when actually the Republicans were the ones that did it first. Now, there is one important distinction, which is that um, bringing in Christopher Steele, who was the former British spy, the MI6 uh, officer, uh, that happened when the Democrats had taken over, uh, because there seemed to be a lot of ties to Russia and, and um, international elements um, of this conspiracy. So they brought in Steele to look at that. And um, I think one thing that's been lost in a lot of the 
discussion about this, certainly, you know, I think the general public who doesn't follow the minutia that well, they, they keep looking at the dossier as whether the entire thing is discredited or not. And and I don't think that that's a way to look at it. In fact, uh, this former CIA person I was talking to today said the same thing. I mean, if, if 90% of it is is um, is, is um, authenticated and credible, um, you can't throw all of that out if 10% isn't, because it wasn't presented to GPS as one document and with everything credible. It was basically a series of reports that were sent to them um, as a client relationship that were all, you know, combined together. But, um, you know, a lot of it seems like it's panning out. One thing that's not re- really well known to the public is that Christopher Steele had one of the best reputations in the world as a, you know, case officer and intelligence officer on Russia. Um, you know, he was deemed to be as good as anybody in the world in, in tradecraft and so forth. So, um, you know, all of these efforts to discredit his work, I think, uh, you know, it, it's they have to be careful about it because I think there's a lot of stuff in the dossier that, that already has been corroborated and that probably will. And this is, of course, the famous Russian dossier that outlined Trump's alleged ties to Russia and uh, g- compromising uh, perhaps footage of the president uh, that BuzzFeed initially released and right. CNN and, and caused uh, Trump to refuse to accept a question from CNN's Jim Acosta calling him fake news at that famous press conference. Right, right. Right. I mean, you know, the, the golden shower is part of this. But, you know, I mean, the people that are familiar with this kind of stuff. It is true that the Ritz-Carlton in Moscow, every one of the VIP rooms is wired for sound and video. Um, you know, when you have a party in a big suite like that, a lot of times, you know, people bring in, you know, large quantities of young women um, who, you know, might be dancers or models and, and maybe escorts on the side. Um, and they sort of show up at these parties, you know, whether you want them to or not. So, you know, um, I think that the description of this, you know, activity in there has been, um, I think people, the nuance of it has been lost on people. I mean, I think it is very, very possible that there was a situation or a scene in the presidential suite where Trump was, where what they allege occurred did occur. Um, but, you know, even if it didn't, to say that that, um, you know, undermines the credibility of a lot of the other stuff in there um, is hard to believe. Um, there's also a string of dead bodies that have uh, of people that have been uh, linked to the dossier, too, including a, a guy that was a former Russian general, who was a top aide to uh, Igor Sechin, who's another one of the uh, oligarchs, uh, who was found dead either in the front seat of his his um, you know town car or the back seat, depending on whether you believe he was moved or not. But um, you know, and he was suspected by some people of being Christopher Steele's coordinator of all of his sources inside Russia. So um, you know, there's a lot of cloak and dagger stuff here, but but you know that doesn't mean it's not true. Getting back to popular not happening. Yeah, right. Getting back to Papadopoulos, if he is indeed a minor player in the campaign, or was, how much do you think Mueller and his team can hope to learn from him? You know, that, that remains to be seen. I mean, I think one of the, you know, the things that really has people freaking out in the administration uh, and the campaign is the fact that, you know, once they flipped him and got him to cooperate, um, he was apparently, as they say, a proactive um, you know, cooperator for three and a half months. And so, you know, somebody said, well, what's he going to do Just start bumping into people by accident and, and wearing a wire and, you know, and it's, there's a lot more sophisticated ways of doing that. I mean, he can be making phone calls to people and those phone calls can be taped and he can, I mean, they have sophisticated ways of doing that. So there, there's a very good chance that he was emailing people or making phone calls or, 
or seeing people in person um, and gathering information that, that, you know, could help the investigation. Um, uh, and even just his knowledge of what was outlined in the, in the affidavit, the FBI's statement about it, um, is potentially very damaging. I mean, who were all of these, you know, four to six people uh, that were involved in some of these decisions? Did it have anything to do with the Carter Page trip to Russia, which was just a few weeks later? Uh, did it also have anything to do with the Trump Tower meeting? Uh, in which, you know, uh, almost identical circumstances where people were discussing dirt on Hillary Clinton and how the Russians were going to give it to the campaign. I mean, you know, Donald Trump Jr. bit hook, line, and sinker on that and attended a meeting with with Paul Manafort and Jared Kushner in which uh, somebody purporting to have that kind of uh, incriminating information on their their opponent uh, from the Russian government was there. So, I mean, right there, that that is extremely incriminating for these guys. And whether they could backpedal and say that there was nothing to it, um, you know, the investigation, I'm guessing, is showing that it's, you know, it's a lot different than that. And remember, they have subpoena power. They have access to emails, phone records. Once they've put people and get them to start talking, uh, it's, it's really hard for people to sort of wiggle their way out of this kind of thing. Finally, uh, to shift gears slightly in our last minute here. On Sunday, you were the author of an article entitled Facebook Struggles to Contain Russian Narrative about this week's congressional hearings about Russian attacks on the electoral process through Facebook, Twitter, and Google with representatives from all three companies in the hot seat. What have we learned so far this week about Russian efforts to affect the 2016 presidential election on social media? You know, I, I mean, we've learned a lot. I think I, I didn't hear m- much of the hearing today because I was doing more follow-ups on Papadopoulos. Um, but, you know, I think that there's, you know, there's different tracks here. I mean, I think one of them is whatever the Trump uh, campaign was trying to do to collude with the Russians, the fact is, you know, going back to this useful idiot theory, uh, the Russians didn't need the Trump campaign to, to really help them uh, if they did in, indeed, you know, flip the election or at least nudge it in one direction. I mean, um, you know, the election was decided by 100,000 votes in three states. Um, Facebook has admitted over just the last few days that 126 million people saw some of these fake ads. And what's coming out in the last few days, and I wrote about this in a separate story, not that one. Oh, that one touched on it, too, uh, was that the organic content is, is going to it's going to come out soon, that that was much, much bigger. So that is, you know, not paid ads that, you know, are at, are, are often identified as such, but but, you know, fake people that are posting things, sharing things, fake, uh, you know, group pages. Um, a lot of times they hijacked existing pages. Let's say your, your Uncle Bob, you know, who's, you know, 87, started a Facebook page and then, like, didn't do anything with it. And, you know, they, they harvested a lot of that and then started sending things out under those. So, I mean, these are people, you know, they were creating real people, uh, inviting people to real events um, and, you know, really moving the needle in terms of, of public opinion um, and and dialogue um, significantly in that. And, you know, I think that we're really just uh, coming to the uh, to sort of the tip of the iceberg in understanding what they did. And and I know for, for a fact that Facebook and Twitter and, and you know, Google and YouTube, uh, they're still just trying to figure it out, too. So we don't really know uh, how much it impacted the election. But when you look at 100,000 votes that, that were the difference here, and hundreds of millions of people like looking at this content. Um, I mean, I, I don't think anybody can say that it didn't uh, impact the election significantly. Thank you very much. My pleasure. My guest has been Politico senior investigative reporter Josh Meyer. He wrote the October 30th article entitled Kremlin likely cultivated Trump advisor, experts say. 
You're listening to a special one-hour edition of Trump Watch on WBAI New York. I'm Jesse Lent. We'll be back in a minute with national security journalist Marcy Wheeler. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Trump Watch. My next guest is a national security journalist whose work has been featured in The Guardian, Daily Coast, and The Huffington Post. Marcy Wheeler wrote the October 30th article for The Intercept entitled George Papadopoulos' plea deal is very, very bad news for Attorney General Jeff Sessions. And she's also been doing a comprehensive breakdown of the Mueller indictments and the unsealing of the plea deal for Papadopoulos on her blog, EmptyWheel.net. Hello, Marcy. Welcome to Trump Watch. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. The focus of your Intercept article is not as much about the fallout for Papadopoulos, Manafort, or Gates as it is an examination of the ramifications for President Trump and Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Uh, what are some of those ramifications? In Papadopoulos's there was the description of a March 31st meeting, um, and people can go online and find a picture of it. There were about nine men in a room. And at that meeting, Papadopoulos said, I'm here on this campaign to set up a meeting with uh, Vladimir Putin. Trump was in the meeting, and Jeff Sessions was in the meeting. And that's significant because, um, A, it puts the president in a very early discussion about uh reaching out to Russia and reaching out to Russia through this guy who also happened to know about the emails that were, that Russia was planning to dump. So that's one thing, but with sessions, it's important because he has on multiple occasions gone before Congress, um, particularly in response to a question Al Franken asked him back in January. Uh, Franken basically said, if you learn about discussions with Russians, what will you do about it? And in January session sort of said, well, I was a surrogate, and I didn't have any conversations, didn't answer the question. But even then, we know that he did have questions. So that was the first problem with Sessions. More recently, back on the 18th of this month, Sessions, or actually last month now, Sessions, um, again, was asked by Al Franken and Pat Leahy and others about whether he knew of any surrogates who had met with Russia. And he said, again, under oath, I don't think it happened. Now we know he was in a meeting, very beginning of his involvement in the campaign, where in fact he did know he was part of that. 
Now, Sessions allies are, are kind of anonymously leaking the press and saying Sessions said that they shouldn't do it and Trump wasn't as definitive. But it's quite clear that, again, Sessions has lied to Congress. And uh, I know that there are people in Congress who are getting kind of frustrated with all of this serial lying from the attorney general. Yes, it's hard to deny Sessions uh, hasn't been elusive when it comes to Senate questions about Russia. Is there a rational reason you can figure why he would deny contacts with Russians, particularly when he's already been found to have distorted the truth on this matter, as you mentioned during his confirmation, uh, confirmation hearings? I can only assume that he believes he's immune from any kind of legal jeopardy. Um, you know, maybe he already has been told that he'll get a pardon if he can protect the president on this point. But I, um, you know, when he answers these questions, he's had three hearings now, he gets this really um, contemptuous look in his face as if he can't believe he even has to answer these questions. So maybe he thinks he's immune from any kind of repercussions on this front. Um, but what is interesting in the most recent hearing, again on the 18th, he was asked whether the special counsel had asked him for an interview. In other words, whether he's going to be interviewed as part of the investigation. And Sessions' answer was ridiculous. He sort of got, you know, he froze for a minute and then he looked and he was like, well, you need to ask them about that. I suspect there's a bigger backstory there and uh, we may hear about it in the upcoming days. You write in your article for The Intercept from Monday, Papadopoulos also learned on April 26th that the Russians have dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of thousands of emails. A key part of Papadopoulos's cooperation uh, must pertain to what he told the Trump campaign about these emails. According to his complaint, he originally claimed that he hadn't told anyone in the campaign about the dirt on Clinton because he didn't know if it was real. Unquote. You continue, there would be no reason for Papadopoulos to lie about the significance of the emails in January unless he did so to hide his discussions of them with the rest of the campaign. So what is the role that the Clinton campaign appears to have played here? The Clinton campaign or the uh, Trump campaign? I'm sorry, the Trump campaign. <laughs> I was confused for a second. Yeah, so, um, and I, and I, that, that point that you asked me about, I laid out in much, much more detail uh, in the most recent post on at emptywheel.net. The, the, um, when Papadopoulos was arrested, the FBI agent who laid out why he should be arrested described those lies as his effort to deny that he had shared the emails with anyone else on the campaign or shared the, the news of the emails with anyone else on the campaign. And that's not laid out as clearly, I think, probably by by design. It's not laid out as clearly in his plea deal. But that's clearly why the FBI was interested in him, because he knew about the emails very early on. He lied to the FBI about things related to the emails, about why, you know, he, he made up a story basically saying, I didn't share information about those emails because I thought this professor I was talking to was, was a nobody. We know that's not true. The implication is he shared the information of those emails. And the further implication of that is that when Paul Manafort and possibly even Jared Kushner went into a meeting on June 9th, 2016, looking for dirt from Russians, they thought it was going to be the emails. So it, it I think, um, makes it much more clear that when, when um, the Republicans, when the Trump campaign was seeking out this information, they knew even before the Democrats did, or at least somebody on their campaign did, um, they knew what they were getting, what to expect, that Hillary, that these emails were out there. 
What was the most striking thing to your eyes to come out of Mueller's two indictments or the unsealing of the plea deal? Well, two things. One was the indictment of Rick Gates. I don't think Gates uh, thought he was going to be indicted. And and I'd add the, the related uh, resignation of um, Tony Podesta from his 30-year uh, influence peddling firm. What, that, what those things suggest is Mueller is going after these influence peddlers more broadly than just Manafort as a way to get him to flip. Um, the Gates thing is interesting because uh, Andrew Weissman, who is kind of his chief deputy, is notorious for getting people to flip because their close family members are indicted with them. I think in this case, Gates may be the close family member, the somebody that uh, that Manafort cares about and, and might flip uh, to to, uh, to help Gates out, although Gates has plenty of information about the campaign on his own right. So that's one thing. The other thing that I think everyone is shocked by is that the Mueller team managed to keep Papadopoulos's arrest and then his uh, his plea secret for as long as they did. I mean, the arrest was two months, three three months ago. The plea deal was a month ago. And it is remarkable to keep a secret in Washington, D.C., as long as either of those things. So, you know, it's a real tribute to how how locked down they are as a team. Yes. Our previous guest, Josh Meyer from Politico, mentioned that, that this is really possibly signifying how much control uh, Mueller really has over this investigation. Uh, the analogy being he's playing chess while Trump is playing uh, tiddlywinks, I believe he said. Well, I mean, Trump is incompetent anyway. His lawyers aren't particularly good. I mean, he like I covered the um, Scooter Libby case very closely uh, a decade ago. And there you had the best lawyers in the country representing the chief defendants. Here you've got people who aren't going to complain a lot if they don't get their entire bills paid. Right. So you're dealing with lesser lawyers. You're dealing with Trump who mucks up everything. And you're dealing, you know, you, you, I mean, we, we expected this from Mueller anyway. And frankly, pretty much any of the 16 lawyers he hired, we would expect the same kind of competence from. But it is nevertheless remarkable for 17 people to keep a secret that long in D.C. And why do you think it's so difficult for the president to get uh, good legal advice? Well, partly because no one wants to work for him. I mean, lawyers, to be competent have to be able to have to rely on their client to take their advice. And Trump won't take anybody's advice, right? The other problem is he has such a long history of not paying his bills that the best firms in the country were unwilling to work with him because they didn't think they'd get paid. The, you know, I mean, those good lawyers do cost a great deal of money. Manafort has said that he's already paid over a million to his lawyers. So, you, you know, you have to be a reliable client to get that kind of legal legal services, and Trump simply has a very long history of not paying his bills. According to a Washington Examiner article from yesterday, there appear to be at least four currently sealed cases on the docket uh, between the October 27th indictment of Manafort and Gates for money laundering and related crimes involving pre-2016 Ukrainian political work. The article even referenced your tweet that the docket suggests, quote, maybe former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn has already flipped. Could you talk about your rationale there and what these sealed cases could mean for Mueller's investigation? Well, it's important to know that um, 
something like a third of the cases that get filed in D.C. start off as sealed cases. So, And there's obviously tons of other crime going on in D.C., garden variety crime, drugs, that kind of stuff would also be sealed. So there is nothing that says those other sealed cases have anything to do with the Mueller investigation. I thought, and I was mistaken about something in the indictment, that um, that there was another one filed before the Manafort one, and the docket immediately preceding the Manafort one is sealed. And it's possible that two things were filed on Friday a week ago, uh, and that they were both sealed. Um, and if so, the people who might be the targets of that would be Flynn, because Flynn would be charged with roughly the same crimes that Manafort was, not registering as a foreign agent, uh, not declaring all of his income to the IRS. Um, and then the other person that's possible is Tony Podesta. As I said, he's kind of the Democratic counterpart to Paul Manafort, this influence peddler who has been sleazy for many, many years. So either is a possibility. Um, the Flynn one is far more intriguing because uh, his camp has been really silent in recent weeks. They've, you know, they, and, which is what we would expect a really good lawyer to enforce on his team. Um, but again, the idea behind these early charges, the charges against Manafort and any early charges that would be filed against Flynn is to give these men a way to plead guilty to bad crimes and face jail time, but kind of uh, leave open all of the, the case and chief issues that they were involved with, which is the, the, you know, the cooperation with Russians such that they can be solid witnesses against those that they were working with. And, and so that's sort of, that's sort of where I think people all expect the Manafort uh, indictment to go. And if anything, if, if Flynn was or soon will be charged, that's where people, I think, expect the Flynn stuff to go as well. Do you believe there's any merit to the president and his press secretary's assertion that the real Russian collusion was with Hillary Clinton's campaign? Or is this just a classic case of trying to shift the blame to an old foe? It's absolutely a classic case of trying to shift the blame. But I think Democrats really brought that on themselves with the way in which they dealt with the uh, the Steele dossier. And I, and I say that because there was a moment, for example, when the, when the news of the June 9th meeting between uh, Trump, well, Don Jr., Trump, and, uh, and Manafort and Kushner and these Russians, there was, we don't yet have evidence from that meeting that there was a quid pro quo. They were offered dirt. Again, we know from Papadopoulos's, uh, his plea that he was at least floated dirt. Um, but we don't yet have any evidence that the Republicans accepted either of those offers. And absent that, what we have are Republicans searching for dirt and searching for dirt in kind of a sleazy way, which is the same thing as paying a spy to go pay. I mean, frankly, we know that we know that deal paid people um, in Russia uh, with close ties to the Kremlin, which is the same co- sort of thing that that uh, that Trump is being alleged to do. The difference, if there ever is proof that there was a quid pro quo, and there's a lot of smoke to suggest there may have been, the difference is that quid pro quo. And I think so long as Democrats are not very clear about the difference between paying a spy to collect dirt and engaging in policy quid pro quos to get dirt, then they open themselves up for this kind of attack. Uh, But there is a difference. 
it's just that Democrats need to be a lot more disciplined about what that difference is. And that's that needs to be the response to this attack from from Trump. Expand on that a little. What, what difference do you mean specifically? Well, so if you pay somebody to collect oppo research and that guy, Steele in this case, who's a former spy, and that guy pays his sources in Russia to trade information, um, they're, they're, those sources in Russia are not doing Vladimir Putin's doing. They're, they're, they're basically, I mean, in fact, one likely source for Steele got killed in unusual circumstances in December. So these are people who are risking their lives to share information just to make some money, basically. Um, they're not doing anything to try and influence the policy of the United States. The difference is that if it is proven that the Trump campaign, and there are really three three cases where this may have been the case, where they were willing to trade policy uh, decisions, that may not benefit the United States in exchange for help in getting elected. That's when you get into to criminal activities because you're accepting foreign assistance for, for a campaign. But it's also when you start getting into something very different from typical ABO research. Um, it is a desperate move to say, I will give you sanctions relief if you help me get elected. Um, then saying, here's some cash. Tell me about... Uh, who is meeting with Russians in Trump's close circle. And to be clear, that was what Michael Flynn was fired for, was talking about sanctions relief in that December 25th phone call, right? Uh, precisely. And uh, since earlier this year, Congress passed and Trump signed new sanctions against the Russians, and he's actually not implementing them right now. So um, people in Congress are beginning to get a little bit cranky about the fact that he is effectively already today giving Russian giving Russian Russia sanctions relief against these new sanctions that Congress by overwhelming numbers imposed. What aspects of Mueller's investigation do you believe aren't being mentioned enough in the reporting on this? Oh, the hacking. Um, you know, we we forget that at at the I mean, we assume these are Russians. Uh that may not be entire, you know, we, we know that Russia did this, right? We know because the intelligence community has told us that um, Russian military intelligence people hacked, uh, hacked Hillary Clinton. But we, what we don't know yet is how those hacked documents got from somebody, uh, and it's unclear where that somebody was, into, say, Julian Assange's hands. We don't know the details around Guccifer 2.0, for example. And, and I think those are some really interesting questions, particularly when you have this other allegation, which is that um, a guy named Peter Smith, a rich Republican kind of bad oppo researcher that goes back to the Clinton days, he was literally seeking out Russian hackers to find uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, Clinton Foundation emails, um, which, again, is legally suspect. And I think there are enough instances of where people like him, people Roger Stone, Mike Flynn is alleged to have been involved with this, were all actively seeking out these ties uh, as go-betweens to get this information shared. That's an aspect, I think, that has, you know, we've gotten distracted from as we talk about Paul Manafort's million dollars of money laundering through an antique rug store in, in Alexandria, or, you know, what happened more centrally in the campaign. And and people should remember that it's going to be the whole picture. 
that Mueller is investigating. He wants to know why those emails were hacked and how those emails got into Julian Assange's hands, anybody like Roger Stone who was involved, but also then the policy quid pro quo that, and that's where Papadopoulos comes in, sort of. Manafort would come in if he, if he does flip. Um, that's the whole picture that, that Mueller will want to show. And that's even before you get into the obstruction, Trump's obstruction, um, for firing Comey and a bunch of other things. So that's where the, that's the big picture. And like I said, I think the actual hack and leak of the emails has kind of fallen by the wayside in people's attention. There are a lot of people, even folks on the left, that are convinced that this is just a political witch hunt. What would you say to anyone who still believes that this is simply an effort to undermine the presidency of a political outsider? Well, I mean, I, I get that, and I get the people who are concerned that um, national security hawks are driving this. And I think that there there is real concern about, for example, some of the leaks that appear to have come from the intelligence community. That's There's real reason to be concerned about the fact that FISA transcripts have leaked. And I and I I think everyone should reflect on what that means and 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 the uh, danger of those kinds of things leaking, both from a national security perspective, but also from a, an abuse of power perspective. Um, but I I think that um, repeatedly there has been there have been disclosures that get us closer to showing that. Not only that, that the hack and leak and, and uh, maybe not uh, cooperation per se, but certainly affirmative efforts on both parts to, to work together, Russians and the Trump campaign, to make this happen. Um, but I think that th- there's the larger, and, and I mean, I, I want to say one more thing too, which is important to remember, which is that Trump never hid the fact that he was pro-Russian. He got elected without hiding the fact that he's pro-Russian. And that's something that I think people on both sides are right to bring up when they, when they critique this. But, but I do think that there are real concerns about whether Trump is making policy decisions to do things like keep himself out of debt, uh, to stay in good with a bunch of Russian oligarchs to whom he's in debt. And that, I think, is the real issue, is is this man who happens to be president making decisions that affect the national security of the United States and the well-being of the United States? It's not just, you know, it's not just the national security, um, solely to uphold the Trump brand, solely to keep himself out of debtor's prison. And that, I think, is a really important question, because, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually fairly sympathetic to the people who are worried about the hawks and um, and who are worried about the, the, the degree to which the Hawks push this. But I, I think we've seen enough from Trump that raise real questions about um, whether he's making decisions for the good of the country or whether he's making decisions uh, for his own for his own enrichment. And, and the, the Russian stuff is a part of that. It's, it's only one part of it. Frankly, there are lots of other parts of it. But I, but I think the Russian stuff is a part of that and, and needs to be understood in that context. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. My guest has been Marcy Wheeler. She wrote the October 30th article for The Intercept entitled George Papadopoulos' plea deal is very, very bad news for Attorney General Jeff Sessions. You're listening to Trump Watch on WBAI New York. I'm Jesse Lent. 
that's going to do it for this week's show. Tune in next week when my guest will be Alec Baldwin. That's right. That Alec Baldwin. He and Kurt Anderson of NPR will be on to promote a parody book that they wrote about, you guessed it, Donald Trump. We'll talk about what went into creating Alec's iconic impression of the president. Also, I wanted to let you know that the second installment of the Psychic Rodeo, the free night of music and comedy that I present each first Friday of the month at the Commons downstairs from the station here at 388 Atlantic Avenue in downtown Brooklyn, is happening again this Friday, November 3rd at 8.30 p.m. The first one was tons of fun, so I hope you'll join us. Find out more at thecommonsbrooklyn.org. Reggie Johnson engineered this program live. You can hear all 46 episodes of Trump Watch with Jesse Lent at soundcloud.com slash trumpwatchwbai or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is trumpwatchwbai or contact me directly at the email address jesse at wbai.org and I'll be back next Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. when we'll break down another aspect of the Donald Trump administration. Until then, I'm your host Jesse Lent. Talk to you next time.